This is Fresh Air. I'm David B. and Cooley, sitting in for Terry Gross. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. For Halloween this year, we're looking back at some of our favorite scary scenes and characters from the movies. One of the most chilling characters to ever appear on screen was that of the psychopath and serial killer Dr. Hannibal Lecter in the 1991 Jonathan Demme film, The Silence of the Lambs. Anthony Hopkins won an Academy Award for the role of Lecter, who used exquisitely precise ways of killing his victims and then eating them. Throughout the film, he taunts FBI agent Clarice Starling, played in the film by Jodie Foster, who is desperately trying to track down another serial killer by the name of Buffalo Bill. She thinks that Lecter may help her peer into Buffalo Bill's deranged mind and visits Lecter in prison. I'm offering you a psychological profile of Buffalo Bill based on the case evidence. I'll help you catch him, Carrie. You know who he is, don't you? Tell me who decapitated your patient, Doctor. All good things to those who wait. I've waited, Clarice, but how long can you and old Jackie boy wait? Our little Billy must already be searching for that next special lady. Terry interviewed Anthony Hopkins in 1991. He told her how he came up with the voice for Hannibal Lecter. When I was assured that the part was on offer to me, I started to work on it and simply to learn the lines and think about it. And it was such a well-written part and the story was so compelling that when I, after the first reading, I heard the voice of Hannibal Lecter, it sort of, I heard it in my head, I saw a vision of it, I, I saw what he looked like. Well, not strictly within the first reading, but let's say maybe two or three readings of the script. Because my work is kind of quite simple. I just um, learn it, you know, before I start filming. Just learn the text, learn the, learn the words. And the voice came. And for some reason, I don't know why, I, the voice sort of... The voice, in fact, identified the character for me. And I saw within a few more days what he looked like. The hair being slicked back and uh, the way he moved his grace and elegance. Describe what you did with your voice. Well, it was one of the... There's one line, which I think is seen on the trailers, and I said, I, I'll help you catch him, Clarice. I don't know what it was. It was just a kind of tone, and uh, there's a speech where he has... He says, uh, one of the speeches that made me understand men was he said, you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. And I thought, that's it, that's, that's the character. You know, there's something both very feet, very scary, and very purring yeah. <laughs> about yes. the voice. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, the thing is, if you're playing an evil character, if you're playing somebody who's mad or evil, mm -hmm. or let's say, just take the first part, if you're playing somebody who's mad, the thing is, is not to play him mad, but to play the opposite, play him as ultra-sane. If you're playing somebody who's evil, play the good side of him. And that makes him more scary because you you humanize him. Because nobody is all 
evil, nobody is all good, whatever those terms mean, but nobody is all one thing. So what I do as an actor is to find out what the other side of the character is. And I found out with Lecter that, in fact, I think his problem is, or his peculiar psychology is that he is so in control of himself, mentally, spiritually, physically, whichever way, he's so totally in control of every aspect of his thinking that he is completely mad because nobody can be in that much control. It's as if he is so sane, he's flipped over into the world of the dark and the irrational. Now, I don't know if this is connected to the control you see the characters having, but you rarely blink in the movie. I mean, the eyes have a fixed stare and they're wide open all the time. Yes. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't analyze much about the part. I mean, I just had a hunch on how to play him. I, first of all, when you're playing a character like this, you have to like him. The actor has to somehow like him. And uh, I think there's something very terrifying about people who are unblinking. It's that they are so certain, they have no doubts, no uncertainty. And they're so certain that makes them terrifying. If you look at all the great monstrous political leaders in our century, you know. One of which you've played. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Old Adolf, yes. They, they, are, they, they rise to power because they're so certain, they have no doubts. Their minds are already made up. Somebody said of Hitler, she, uh, a, a journalist who interviewed Hitler in 1936, before the war, she said, Hitler has in his library 1,000 books. He hasn't read any one of them. But of course he doesn't need to because his mind is already made up. And I found that the most apocalyptic, <laughs> frightening um, a vision of a man. And I think it's the same with Lecter. He knows with absolute certainty what he is and what everyone else is around him. What kind of kidding took place on the set in between shooting? <laughs> we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. On the set, I'd go up behind people. Um, there'd be people working on the props or something or, you know, some of the guys walked around. I got behind them and said, good evening. <laughs> Are you having pleasant dreams? And they'd sort of jump. But it was a joke. It was a kind of funny joke. Everyone on the set was very happy. I mean, everyone seemed to work very uh, with a great deal of ease. You've said that you really liked working with uh, Jonathan Demme. Is there any kind of direction that he gave you that is different from what you're used to getting? Is there something different about the style that he works in? Um, I think the the great hallmark for me, anyway, of uh, the great uh, sort of positive for me is when directors. It's not that they exactly leave you alone, but the, what they do, they they let you develop the the character, and it's really a question of trust. And what I felt with Jonathan was that he um, he had total trust in me as an actor, and because he paid me that compliment, I had total trust in him as a director. And I'd seen it, so some of his films, I'd seen something wild. Married to the Mob, and uh, I thought I, I knew that I was in the hands of a very skilled craftsman. He would listen to some of my suggestions that I wanted to do, and you know, he there were two ideas I came up with that he thought were excellent, and he let me get on with them. Are those the ideas that you mentioned? Well, no, it was just, uh, and I, he wanted. He asked me, he said, "How do you feel about what? What? How would you like to first be seen? You know, when we." Uh, the film spends a lot of time talking about Lecter before they see him. And I said, well, if you don't mind, I said, I'd, I'd like to just be seen standing right in the middle of the cell 
as if I'm waiting for her. And he said, God, that's weird. He said, well, I said, well, it's a, it, it, it's the most terrifying thing I can think of is the very monster that she's listened to and heard about. When she actually goes towards him and she comes into eye contact, comes in, into the area of his cell, that he is staring straight at her with a nice smile on his face. And I've, I sensed my own psyche, whatever that means, that that's the most terrifying thing. That's the sort of base of my nightmares, in a way. Or it was as a child. Somebody waiting for you? Somebody waiting for me in the corner or on the top of the stairs. Or I used to have a dream. I'd open the door when I was a child. There'd be banging on the front door of the house in the dark. And it was always moonlight. And as I opened the door, there'd be nobody there. But across the street, in a window, three floors up in the building opposite, there was a face staring out at me and smiling. That was the most terrifying nightmare. In itself, it doesn't sound frightening, but there's something strange about that. And uh, and this is what I wanted to, to do to the audience. I wanted them to just take that moment of horror when they see Lecter, that they don't see somebody with blood dripping off his mouth. They see a very pleasant, normal-looking man standing to attention in the middle of his house. Very weird. Anthony Hopkins speaking with Terry Gross in 1991. Coming up, the voice of the devil in another horrifying film, The Exorcist. Stick around. This is Fresh Air. Mercedes McCambridge was an Oscar-winning actress who played tough, often abrasive characters. In the Orson Welles film Touch of Evil, she played a lesbian motorcycle gang leader. And in the 1954 western Johnny Guitar, she squares off in a deadly shootout with Joan Crawford. But perhaps her most popular and memorable movie role was in the 1973 movie, The Exorcist. She played one of the scariest characters in the history of the movies, using only her voice. Creating the voice of the devil, which came out of the possessed little girl, Reagan, played by Linda Blair. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Intensely. But wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan. You and us. What's that? Holy water. You keep it away. It burns! It burns! When Terry Gross spoke with Mercedes McCambridge in 1981, she asked how the actress created the voice of the devil. The Exorcist Demon is a radio performance in a film. Yeah, yeah. It's 100% radio. But I had such a great teacher in college that I can go now from what is a rather high and, and thin and reedy tone of what I am doing all the way without any effort whatsoever down to the absolute coarseness of what I'm <laughs> And on back up without any problem whatsoever. Uh, young actors are doing themselves a great disservice by not uh, using the voice as much as they should as the best possible tool for communication. Everybody talks about projection, the hardest 
the most difficult projection in the world is into this microphone. That's where the projection counts. The timbre has to be so much deeper than to use a voice full of stentorian tones in a theater reaching 5,000 people. That's nowhere near so difficult as coming down to the thing of trying to convey to someone, I love you. Do you know how much I love you? That's exciting. That's, and it's all a funny little instrument inside us with a lot of uh, timpani going in muted sounds. Let's get back to The Exorcist. How did you figure out what the right uh, speech would be and, and, and the, the wheezing sound that you Yeah, but the speech was, was, uh, is nothing. You know, and I, I read, uh, again, reread uh, some of Kazantzakis' things about uh, Lucifer, and I wanted to cry as Lucifer cried, but it's, it's very hard to... Uh, we taped them on with eight different microphones, with the the people in the control room at Warner Brothers in this most sophisticated sound studio, and they would have them at different levels, and the microphones open them to various degrees or non-degrees of acceptance. And in one place, I uh, I had to vomit. Um, on the screen, you see um, the green vomit from the girl's mouth, the bile, and it comes out in a projectile kind of way. Well, what it is is, is a pea soup with cornflakes in it to make the bumps of vomit. Now, I had to make that sound. And the way I finally did it, and it was only through stumbling and invention, again, you know, as, as Stanislavski says, you utilize it, uh, I would have them bring me apples, sections of apple, and I would put a whole bunch of those mushy apples in my mouth, and then from a Dixie cup, I would put in two eggs that had been just broken into the cup, not mixed up, just the yolk lying there looking at you, two of those, and at a signal from the control room when the, the frame of the film, which I was watching on the big screen in the empty sound studio, when it came up to the point where the little girl with the pea soup and the cornflakes coming out of tubes that were built up from the back of her bed and then around the outside of her cheeks and then her cheeks covered with makeup with spouts in her mouth, I had to time that precisely to the frame by swallowing these sections of apple, which were to be the lumps, and then the eggs down to mid-gullet, and then forcing the diaphragm muscles, and then throwing it up on eight microphones covered with a tarp. Oh, uh, that's very hard. It, it, it's, <laughs> you, you have a hard time doing that. Uh, again, Stanislavski says you can utilize anything that's ever happened to you. Uh, all my life I've wheezed, uh, particularly when I was smoking, thank God. I don't know if I could play the demon in the same way now because I don't smoke anymore. But when I did, I wheezed a lot. And I didn't know how to get the breath of the demon across. And I wonder now if I can do it. Let's see, because my lungs have been cleared now of, of smoke for almost three years. So there isn't that awful bronchial hacking noise in there. But getting very close to the microphones, and it's hard to wheeze for any length of time. First of all, you have to wait until all of the air is out of the bellows of the lungs, and then you can maybe for a few seconds sustain it. But Blatty says in the book it had an unearthly sound, the devil's breathing, that could be heard through the open door. But if I get very close to the microphone, maybe I can do it. Well, that's very hard to do because you're gagging and you're forcing right down to the ultimate, the last breath that you have in your body. You do that for five or ten minutes and you have to go lie down for a while and come back and do it again. 
very exhausting. There's, there's a great story that you tell in your book that I'd love for you to tell us. Mm. It's about um, a radio drama you're doing with Boris Karloff, in which mm. I, I guess he's a vampire, and, and of he, course he sucks he your blood. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a great sound effect that I'd like you to yeah, tell us he, about. We couldn't find anything. Boris was... This gentleman, Boris Karloff, was the vampire who had broken my neck or would break my neck in the show and, and suck the blood. And he's standing on one side of the microphone going... <laughs> and everything, and I'm making anguished little noises on the other side, dying of the broken neck and the blood being sucked. But we couldn't find any sound that would really give the impression of the bones in the body or the neck breaking. And Tommy Horan, the sound man at NBC in Chicago, bought a whole sheaf, if that's the word, of spare ribs. And he had a cleaver, and he was pounding at these spare ribs, and they were flying off like pterodactyls, toenails into the corners of the studio, just really awful. But it wasn't the sound that it should be. So then in, the, in one of the drawers of his uh, utility table, he found some peppermint lifesavers. And he put a peppermint lifesaver, I wish I had one now, on end between his back teeth and got very close to his microphone, the sound microphone, and crunched. And you'd hear these little bits, these little flakes of peppermint lifesaver uh, being disintegrated. And it sounded like every small bone in the neck was being split. It was just great. So he was over there doing that with his mastication. And I'm groaning, and Boris is going, <laughs> oh, it was sensational. But it was just a lifesaver. That's a, such a great story. Yeah, yeah. In radio, we had them like that. Mercedes McCambridge spoke with Terry Gross in 1981. McCambridge died in 2004 at the age of 87. Here she is as the voice of the devil in The Exorcist. In this scene, the spirit within the little girl is being questioned by a skeptical priest, played by Jason Miller. Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar display of power, Karras. Where's Reagan? In here, with us. Show me Reagan and I'll loosen one of the straps. And you're helping old altar boy, Father. Your mother's in here with us, Karras. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she gets it. If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name. What is it? What is it? Yum. Coming up in the second half of our Halloween special, Sissy Spacek talks about playing a teenage girl with telekinetic powers in the horror film Carrie. Also, Kathy Bates was the psychotic nurse in the horrifying movie Misery. She'll tell Terry about shooting that bone-crushing scene with James Caan. 
She was his number one fan. And George Romero, who made Night of the Living Dead, will recommend what not to do when directing a bunch of zombies. I'm David Bean Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. We're noting Halloween, this show, by sharing stories about some of the scariest films ever made. Many of them are based on stories by Stephen King, including Misery, which we'll hear about in a few minutes, and the hit movie Carrie, which originally was released as a surprise sneak preview on Halloween night in 1976. I was there in the back row of a movie theater in Gainesville, Florida, and watched an entire audience jump and scream as one. In that film, Sissy Spacek played the outcast teenager who was pranked on prom night and covered with a bucket of pig blood. She earned an Academy Award nomination for that role. Terry Gross interviewed Sissy Spacek in 2012. In the beginning of the movie, you're in the shower after gym class, and it's a very lyrical scene and lovely music, and suddenly there's blood between your legs, and you don't understand what menstruation is, and this is like the first time you've started menstruating, and you're just in a panic seeing the blood. And you start screaming, and then, you know, all the girls are, like, laughing at you. And then you go home, and you tell your mother, played by Piper Laurie, what's happened, and that the kids were laughing at you. And that, you know, you want to know, how come you never told me about this? And um, this is just a really, like, frightening (laughs) scene. You know, Piper Laurie, as your mother, picks up this book and starts reading from a chapter called The Sins of Women. And then she starts, like, hitting you on the head with it. And what we hear at the end of this scene is your mother dragging you into a closet and locking you up in it as punishment. So here's the scene with my guests, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie and Carrie. The raven was called sin. Why didn't you tell me, Mama? Say it. No. The raven was called sin. Ooh, woman. And the raven was called sin. And first sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. I didn't sin, Mama. Say it. I didn't sin, Mama. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. First sin was intercourse. The first sin was intercourse. Mama, I was so scared. I thought I was dead. And the girls, they all laughed at me and threw things at me. And Eve was weak. Say it. No, Mama. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. No. Eve was weak. Say it. No, Mama. Say it. Eve was weak. Eve was weak. And the Lord visited Eve with a curse. The curse was a curse of blood. You should have told me, Mama. You should have told me. Oh, Lord. Help the sinning woman see the sin of her days and ways. Show her that if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come on her. She no. may have been tempted by the Antichrist. She may have committed the sin of lustful thoughts. No, Mama, oh, don't no. lie to me, Carrietta. Don't you know by now I can see inside you? I can see the sin as surely as God no, can. No, you're we'll pray. No. We'll pray, no. woman. That's my guess. This is Spacek with Piper Laurie as her mother in a great scene uh, from Carrie. And that's Sissy Spacek oh. at the end banging on the closet door that her mother's oh my just God, locked that's her in. Disturbing, isn't it? Disturbing, yeah, I know. Oh and, my god, but it sounds like a duet, it almost sounds like music the way you two are doing your parts uh, together. She was playing scenes with her and playing scenes with other, other actors is really like a dance, and we just both came in prepared, and then and we just it just became real for us. And uh, you know, I, I poured over. 
all the religious material and uh, the Dore etchings of the Bible. Actually, my husband, who was designing the film, had stacks of research. And when I went through it, I found a, a book of all of the Dore etchings of the plates of the Bible. And one of the things I noticed was how dramatic and melodramatic the the body positions were. And I studied those, and I tried to either begin a a scene, end a scene, or it's sometime during the scene, take on those biblical and very dramatic body positions. And I think that subliminally, you know, it gave it another layer. Also, I think, you know, the thing about Carrie was she just, she didn't care about her telekinesis. She didn't care about that. She just wanted to be normal, but she didn't know how to be. She didn't have any, <laughs> she didn't, obviously didn't have any help at home, and she was an abused <laughs> child. <laughs> but, you know, I, we shot in a soundstage at Culver City Studios in Los Angeles, and, you know, it's a huge, dark, cavernous building, and I was always lurking. You know, all the cast was having fun together, and I was, you know, lurking in the in the catacombs and the dark corners, the dark recesses of this this building, kind of licking my wounds. And uh, and that was the time in my career where I, I I stayed in character, and you know, so I I was really hamming it up. <laughs> you were twenty five when you got the role, even though Carrie is a high school student, a very lonely high school student who's frequently bullied. She has telekinetic powers. She has a mother who's a religious zealot who's obsessed with sexual sin and punishment. Um, Tell us how you dressed for this audition to make it clear that even though you were 25, you could be a convincing high school student. Well, I wore a little sailor dress that my mother had had made for me when I was in about seventh grade. And I took the hem out of it. I remember that. So it was a little more, uh, I looked a little more dorkish. (laughs) But um, I looked very young. I I, I remember I read the book again the night before the screen test, and that was enough to really connect me with it. And I woke up. I didn't brush my teeth. I didn't wash my face. I put Vaseline in my hair. Why did you put Vaseline in your hair? Just so it would look dirty and I would look a little unkept and uh-huh and and then sorry for myself i just uh i think all of us have a carry in us somewhere certainly most teenagers do and so i just channeled that side of myself so in the final scene and if you haven't seen carry and you intend on seeing it soon tune out for for a couple of seconds <laughs> but in in the final scene after you've been you know dead and laid to rest the Amy Irving character comes to visit your grave and there's beautiful music playing and suddenly like your hand shoots out from beneath <laughs> the earth and everybody in the audience like screams or jumps. Um, and you insisted, you know, the, 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 the director, Brian De Palma, suggested getting, you know, like a stunt person, a body double to, to do that part, just like the hand coming out of out of the grave. But you insisted that like it be your hand and that you be buried when you see the film with other people, as I suspect, but maybe you haven't done, um, are you glad it's your hand when you see people's reaction to that scene? Oh, absolutely. I uh, laughed, you know, about that, that I do all my own foot and hand work and always have. <laughs> but 
Uh, you know, I used to go to, and when I was in New York, uh, and Carrie came out, I would go to theaters just for the last five minutes of the film to watch everyone jump out of their chairs. Because if you know it's coming, you know, the film ends about, as Brian said, about eight times. And so your people are all relaxed. The music is really beautiful and relaxing. And, and all of a sudden that comes up and people just go crazy. Although, my, you know, my favorite scene in the film is the one where Carrie's mother is impaled with the kitchen utensils. That, I think, is one of the most wonderful um, and unique scenes. And it was done back then. Uh, she was rigged, and all of those kitchen utensils were sticking out of her. They were, you know, there was a, she was wearing a harness, and it was very... Um, Let me just explain that, um, you know, what happens is uh, your mother stabs you in the back with this big butcher knife, and then she makes a cross with the knife. And then using your telekinetic powers, you summon all the knives in the kitchen to kind of rise up and uh, float over and uh, and stab her. So she's impaled with all the kitchen knives through your telekinetic powers. So... Obviously, and a couple of carrot peelers. And a, yes, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's the scene that you're describing. Yes, and it was interesting because they shot it backwards and then they reversed the film. Uh, so they started, when we were shooting it, they started in her body and then were pulled out on wires to, you know, to the counter where the potato peeler was and to the uh, the drawer where the knives were. And, you know, it was it, it's certainly not the way they do special effects now, but it just holds up so beautifully. Sissy Spacek speaking with Terry Gross in 2012. Next up is Kathy Bates, who played the unhinged nurse with a very hostile way of caring for her captive, bedridden patient. This is fresh air. In the 1990 thriller Misery, Kathy Bates plays Annie Wilkes, a registered nurse and an obsessed fan of romance novelist Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan. It was the first major screen role for Bates. Terry interviewed Kathy Bates in 1990. I'll let Terry take it from here. Misery opens as Paul Sheldon finishes a new novel in the quiet of a remote Colorado cabin. On the drive home, he gets caught in a blizzard and drives off the road. The unconscious writer is rescued by the nurse, played by Bates, who turns out to be his number one fan. Too bad she's also crazy. She nurses him back to health, and she creates makeshift casts for his two broken legs. But she keeps him as her prisoner. And as he begins to heal, she makes sure he stays disabled. This is a clip from the most revolting scene in the movie, the sledgehammer scene. Even if you haven't seen the film, you'll remember this from the TV ads. But the ad ends before we actually see how Annie hurts Paul. I know you've been out twice, Paul. First, I couldn't figure out how you did it. But last night, I found your key. I know I left my scrapbook out. I can imagine what you might be thinking of me. But you see, Paul, it's all okay. Last night, it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Paul, do you know about the early days at the Kimberly Diamond Mines? Do you know what they did to the native workers who stole diamonds? Don't worry, they didn't kill them. That would be like junking a Mercedes just because it had a broken spring. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working. 
but they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's Shh, darling. Trust me. Do you want to explain what you do in this scene? Uh, well, uh, technically, I put a board between his legs and I break his ankles. You know, it's such a... This is the scene that you walk away thinking, oh, gosh, I hope I don't think about this scene very often. <laughs> it really hurts to watch it. Yeah, my sister, who's had a problem with her ankles, said it was particularly difficult for her. <laughs> what did you actually hit? Uh, well, I actually hit a, a prosthetic leg that was built for us by the special effects team, KNB, and they built a couple of really very realistic legs uh, that we used uh, in that particular shot. Did this image haunt you? No, uh, it was it was more of a technical problem for me, Terry, um, and I, I think uh, it was more of a, a difficult shot in terms of camera angles. And so, by the time we'd went through it, we'd gone through it several times. Uh, that was what I was more interested in was trying to get it right than anything else. What was your reaction when the first time you saw it on screen? I thought it looked great. I couldn't believe it worked so well. Um, have people been telling you that this film relates to? Have have well-known people been telling you that this film relates to phobias they have about their own fans? Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, story. Rob Reiner told me that Ringo Starr had come to one of the early screenings and uh, liked the film very much and afterwards went outside and was walking, I guess, to the car with friends and some woman came up to him on the street who completely out of the blue and said, oh, are you Ringo Starr? And he said, yeah. She said, I'm your number one fan. <laughs> and he just turned white, apparently. I think that was the wrong time for him to hear that. Well, everybody's probably been coming up to you and saying they're your number one fan. Yes, they are. I was on The Tonight Show last night, and I said it to Barry Manilow just to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I understand that you studied tapes of um, psychopathic killers before doing the role. Yes. What, what well, did you look actually, at? I, I read some books, and I did see some tapes of nurses who kill. Where did you find the tape? Uh, well, I, quite by accident. Right after I was cast in the role, I saw a program on Geraldo Rivera, and they had a, a program on nurses who kill. The chilling thing about these portraits was that uh, the individuals uh, who were in prison for committing these crimes were, uh, were extremely disconnected to the event itself. Uh, and one of them I remember saying, well, I, I know I must have done it because I'm in jail. But uh, he had no um, connection to what he had uh, done at all. And, and I, I liked that disconnection. And going back to your first question, I think emotionally that's what's happening with Annie during the hobbling. There's just absolutely no real connection to the event and the pain that she's causing this other human being. And I think that's a central characteristic of a psychopath, a sociopath. Um, this, this was really your first big movie role. How are you cast in the role? Uh, I was handed it by Mr. Rob Reiner. He had seen my work out in L.A. as a stage actor, and uh, he called and, and, and said that he was interested in, in hiring me to do the lead in his new film. And uh, I was thrilled when I heard it was going to be Misery because it was a book that I had read some years ago, and I'd always secretly wanted to play the character of Annie. I have one bone to pick with the, uh, this isn't with the acting, but with the characterization of, 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 of the woman that you play. I don't think she'd be listening to Liberace records in her room. I think she'd probably be listening to Elvis. 
Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. I I think uh, Liberace is uh, better because of her disconnectedness to her sexual libido, <laughs> you know. And I think Elvis, the pelvis, definitely is. Uh, I think a little bit too raunchy for her. I think Liberace is a little more feet off the ground uh, kind of music for her. And uh, I, I kind of agree with Mr. King on that. So I have to disagree with you, Terry. <laughs> but I see you really thought it through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kathy Bates, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Terry, for having me. It was a pleasure. Kathy Bates speaking with Terry Gross in 1990. After a break, we'll be back with some zombies. This is Fresh Air. Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's 1968 horror film, ushered in a genre of zombie films and TV shows that's stronger than ever. Even as the long-running TV series The Walking Dead is winding up, Several spin-offs are in the wings, ready to launch. And George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which generated several sequels of its own, established it all with its low-budget story of corpses rising from the dead to feast on the flesh of the living. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. George Romero made Night of the Living Dead on a shoestring budget, working on the weekends. It became a cult classic and now resides in the archives of the Museum of Modern Art. Night of the Living Dead had scenes that were really graphic for the time, with shots of zombies munching on arms and internal organs. The sequels that Romero directed pushed the gore even further. Terry Gross spoke with George Romero in 1988. Now, I I presume you loved horror films when you were growing up. Um, Did you like them because they scared you, or were there other things in terms of, of the mood of the movies that you liked a lot? I liked them principally because they scared me. They were they were they were the most fun uh, for me. Um, <clears throat> I think because the things that scare me in real life are always the more realistic things. The fear that someone might drop a bomb on my head, or that someone. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I actually went through in New York City blackouts when we had to close the windows and worry about air raids and. Um, I don't know whether those were realistic worries or not, but as a kid, uh, when we all had to run around pulling down the drapes and turning the lights off, it was a very frightening experience. And then to think that... um, I remember when when John Cameron Swayze over the television told me personally that um, the Russians now had the atomic bomb, and I knew that we were goners, you know. Is that why there's always uh, some newscaster telling about... The, the latest progress of the zombies in your movies? Uh, probably, yeah. I have a, a real strong um, uh, concern for <laughs> for what electronic media has done to us and bringing us the news as quickly as it does and not, you know, not letting us sort of discover things for, our, for ourselves or, have, or allow them to gestate, you know. It's just a little too... I think it's the pace more than... I don't... Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be brought the news, but it's just the... the the pace at which things are fired at us, I think, is maybe a little too fast. Can I, can I read something that uh, Variety wrote when Night of the Living Dead came out in 1968? 
Uh, I said, this film casts serious aspersions on the integrity of its makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who book the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for unrelieved sadism until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for pornography of violence Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit definition by example. Mm-hmm. Well, did you feel when you made that movie that you were uh, compromising your moral health or that of your audience? I, I didn't feel that way at all. And I, uh, Night of the Living Dead did, I think, I attribute much of its success to the fact that it was one of the films that people wrote uh, about in those terms. Uh, the, the, the piece that you just read was one of... Uh, a uh, hundred pieces that were pleading for some sort of, um, you know, that that was in the period of time between the Hayes Commission and the MPAA, which we have now, and there was no um, governing panel at all that was indicating, there was no censor board, there was no one indicating what, um, in any fashion, what was to be expected from the content of a film. And, you know, I certainly didn't make Night of the Living Dead for it to be showed at a kitty matinee. Uh, and that was principally what it what it was criticized for. And I believe that, that rightfully so, that it shouldn't be shouldn't have been shown at kitty matinees. That's not who the film was made for. Well, Tom Savini, who's done a lot of the special effects for your movie, said in, in his book that he wasn't happy with how the 3M stage blood photographed in, in Dawn of the Dead, which is the second in your zombie trilogy. And I wonder if you felt that way, too. I liked it. <laughs> and Tom and I will always <laughs> argue about it. I, I liked the fact that it looked comic book. Tom felt it looked too bright and red. And it didn't look mm-hmm. real. And I, f- I feel that that helps uh, ease, the, ease the pain a little bit, <laughs> the fact that it was more comic book. I like the fact that it looked very comic book. How did you come up with the way you wanted the zombies in your zombie movies to walk? Did you demonstrate for them how you wanted them to look? No, it's funny. Uh, you know, at the moment you, when you have 40 people in makeup looking at you and you're trying to direct them and tell them what you want them to do, if you make the slightest little arm movement, then in the next shot everyone makes that arm movement. And so if, uh, uh, I pretty much leave it up to them and just ask them to do whatever they think uh, a zombie might do if it had just recently come back and had stiff limbs and come back from the dead with stiff limbs. Because if, if uh, truly, if you, if you demonstrate at all, then all of a sudden you get everyone doing exactly that. And the only way to, to, that I've found to keep everyone doing their own thing is to let them do whatever they want to do. I know that a lot of students were in Night of the Living Dead. Uh, have people kept up with you over the years trying to be extras, trying to be zombies in your movies? Oh, yeah. It's so funny. It's like someone wrote once that it's sort that it's some there's some kind of uh, of um, of uh, a cultist kind of chic to being a zombie in one of these movies. I don't know. I'm, I'm always amazed that people that call and say they want to come in and they want to be a zombie or they want to do a special kind of a shtick or a special kind of business. We haven't been able to accommodate as as many people as have requested to come in, so... It's never a problem getting zombies. You've said that you've never really uh, been afraid of, of, of the kind of images you create. What scares you is real stuff. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, have you ever been haunted by any image that you've created for a movie? Only to the extent that I've been typecast <laughs> as someone that makes this kind of movie. And so that's a kind of haunting, I guess. But again, that's reality. That's not anything. That's not part of the fantasy. No, I haven't been. Uh, the, anything the, you'd be too squeamish to film? Um, 
I, I couldn't shoot news, I don't think. You know, I don't think I would want to cover, a, um, you know, Vietnam. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't think I could do it. it uh, in, in, in the context of, of fiction, uh, I'm, I'm not bothered by it because I guess I feel that it's, that it's uh, safe. And I'm always actually a little bit alarmed by the way people react to it. I'm, I'm more alarmed by people reacting violently to the violence in my films than I am by the violence in, any, in, in films. Well, I thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. George Romero speaking with Terry Gross in 1988. The director of Night of the Living Dead and other classic horror films died in 2017 at the age of 77. On the next Fresh Air, we'll speak with the director of the new film, Till, about the murder of Emmett Till, who was lynched while visiting relatives in Mississippi. His mother insisted that his mutilated body be photographed for the world to see, images which helped spark the civil rights movement. The film's director, Chinoya Chuku, is our guest. Join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, Al Banks, and Tina Calake. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Sharrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm David Biancooley.